Turn these beautiful pages in front of you to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, and let's see what the Lord will show us from this shorter chapter. I will tell you ahead of time that the last three verses of Isaiah 52 are spectacular about the Lord Jesus Christ. What a spectacular introduction to Isaiah 53. We don't want to leave those three verses off from Isaiah 53, but combining them we have 15 wonderful verses, and yes indeed, it is the legal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for the sins of his people in those 15 verses. And it's very clearly made so by the words and choice of words of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 52 is a connection with Isaiah 51. They go together. You can tell by the first two words of 52 because they're the words used in Isaiah 51.9 and the words used in Isaiah 51.17. So you can see that connection and the words and the lessons are going to be similar. It's going to be an exchange between the Lord and His people that were in Babylon and it's going to be looking at different angles of their deliverance out of that city. And then we will read again about the Lord's servant, Messiah. Remember in chapter 50, He was called the servant. Lord's servant. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll be called the servant again at the end of this chapter. The first lesson is the first three verses. The remnant should embrace the great deliverance coming. The overall theme is that God would deliver his remnant out of Babylon and he had promised many good things to them. But in this chapter, the many good things has added to it the Lord Jesus Christ. The remnant should embrace the great deliverance. And so there is an awaking being called for again by this chorus of prayer and appeal for the city to come alive and for the city to celebrate their recovery out of Babylon. First three verses. Isaiah 52. Awake! Awake! Put on thy strength, O Zion! Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. Amen, amen and amen. So the prayerful appeal, the chorus of voices, Isaiah and his people, the exiles. Isaiah, you know, was 160 years away from Cyrus, delivering the Jews out of Babylon. But he writes about it sometimes as if it's in the past tense, sometimes as if it's in the present tense, or just about to occur. And you've got to get used to that when you read the prophets and not worry about it just enjoy it because he's looking at it from different angles and it's from a prophetic angle so it's written differently poetry is written differently the psalms are written different than hebrews the psalms are written different than genesis because it's a different genre of literature right. yet it's all part of the bible for us and this is why we have the verb tenses moving around and the view 
changing from time to time. Here again, we have the virgin daughter of Zion. God comparing his church to a woman, God comparing his church to a daughter, and the cry is for her to awake and to begin to celebrate and to shake off that terrible captivity that she had and the dust that was on her for being treated dishonorably and not having ordinary hygiene and ordinary clothes provided for her. So it's time to celebrate. We had an appeal to God to deliver the first awake. Then we had Jerusalem wasted. Now we have Jerusalem celebrating. And it's right here in front of us. Awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Remember, it was asking for the Lord to show some strength with his arm. And he did. And so what should we do? We should, come to, we should bring some strength to bear on celebrating that God that delivered us. Amen. And so, awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, the holy city of Jerusalem. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Because of God's great deliverance of the Jews, it was time for them to celebrate. You can look at this second half of verse 1 and say, is this the uncircumcised foreigners like the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and the Egyptians? Not really, because that just doesn't make as much sense in this context as Jerusalem, the city, the worship, the church of God, fitting a particular attribute of God that was presented to the men this morning in our prayer room. If you look at verse 1, is there an attribute of God that sheds some light on what we are supposed to understand that no more shall the uncircumcised and the unclean get in there. Holy. There is going to be a holy renovation of the nation. And there was. They never were guilty of idolatry again. When you go read Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, there is no idolatry. There is them getting tired of their religion. And there is them committing adultery. And there is them marrying foreign wives but there isn't idolatry. There was an improvement in their character, and God said in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that he would write his law in them in a different way than he had before. And so we, we can see that happening. When we read about Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Joshua the high priest, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, along with Ezra, Nehemiah, and those men, they led a holy nation. The nation would slip, those men would bring it back on track. But the main thrust, the main thrust of a verse like this, when we see the holiness of God and we see the holy city, we see the, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is made so much holier than anything before. And remember, when you look at the kingdom of Jesus Christ or the church, many are called, but few are chosen. And all of the chosen are holy even if they're not holy in practice for a month or a year or 10 years, they are holy in the sight of God because they've been made holy by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So we've had a, an awake of, to the Lord to deliver. We've had an awake of how terrible of a situation Jerusalem was in. And now we have an awake for that city to celebrate because there is going to be a change moving forward they're not going to commit idolatry any further. 
Jesus Christ and John the Baptist are going to preach a new law, the kingdom of heaven to these people, and then it's going to go to the Gentiles. If you wanted the most distant fulfillment of this verse, you would go to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, where it says the holy city will descend from God out of heaven, and there would be those inside it called the faithful, and there would be those outside of it, and it lists a number of sins for the being the unclean and the uncircumcised in a spiritual way. If, if you know your Bible, I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time. Revelation 21 and 22, it identifies those outside the city. Outside are dogs and sorcerers and so forth that don't get into the city because the real city that is being understood to a degree at all times is the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. When Nathan the prophet came and told David, your desire to build me a temple is wonderful. Thank you. But I'm not going to let you build me a temple. Your son's going to build it. I want to give you this as an example. Do you know that's in 2 Samuel 7. I, I love that chapter. I love the dialogue between David and God. Your son's going to build it. Now be very careful because I'm going to ask you a question. Do not be hasty. Who is his son that's going to build his temple? And Solomon and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're both there. They're both there. When you read Psalm 89 and you see God choosing one mighty out of the people and calling him David, <laughs> who is it? I'll grant you David. Who else is it? It's the Lord Jesus Christ because his throne's going to be established forever and all the nations of the world are going to worship him in Psalm 89. And you, you need to get used to that. I have done my best, and it may not be perfect, but I've done my best to show you the, the first and prime fulfillment of most of these verses. But do not think that when we read verse 1, shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. If you take it physically, Gentiles did come in. They took over the city. The Romans took over the city. The Greeks took over the city. If you make it spiritual, the whole nation was a bunch of hypocrites. And the leaven of the Pharisees had infected that nation. And so we know that there is a fuller fulfillment of it out in the future. And it's the true church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of heaven in its glorious splendor. But because of verse 3, look at verse 3. Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. You know, they didn't get anything out of the Babylonians capturing them. You know, shouldn't you get paid if you let somebody come in and, and buy your house and burn it to the ground and take your religion and destroy it to the ground and break down your city walls and destroy all your infrastructure? Shouldn't you get paid a little something for it? But they didn't get paid anything. So we have here the issue at stake of the Babylonians and their deliverance from Babylon by Cyrus the Persian. And yet, I want you to see coming through these verses, the greatest fulfillment is the, is the fulfillment you are part of. That's the beauty of being able to preach in the New Testament. The greatest fulfillment of these verses is you being part of the fulfillment. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Verse 2. Get yourself a chair. Make yourself comfortable. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck. Get that chain off, O captive daughter of Zion. It's time to celebrate. God's delivering you. And you want to thank and praise Him. For thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. If a group of people had enough money, they could have paid Belshazzar to be released. But they didn't have to pay because Cyrus the Persian came in and did it all for them. And they were delivered without payment. So I want you to know that in verse 3, the word not, or the word standing for nothing, is no compensation or no money because the verse says, and ye shall be redeemed without money. There is a, there is a comparison and a contrast being made. Just like you sold yourselves free, I'm going to deliver you free. There will not be money involved. Mm -hmm. Now, if you remember where we've been, Isaiah 45 says, the Lord said, I'm going to give Cyrus the riches and treasures of darkness and secret places. Remember? Because he was going to get the vaults of the Babylonian Empire. So Cyrus got paid, but the Jews didn't have to pay any of it. So they were redeemed without money. Because it says both. Look at Isaiah 45. Verse 3. I will give thee, this is God speaking to Cyrus, I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. I'm going to give you everything of Babylon. They're not going to be able to, to scurry it out of the country because they're going to be so confident that you cannot take the city. They will not have put $1 in Swiss banks. They will not have put $1 offshore. It will all be in the city of Babylon because it was taken in one night while they were celebrating. And so God gave Cyrus a paycheck. You know he cares. You know God cares. Remember? Who's the king that he made sure that he gave Egypt to them for wages for his soldiers because they had besieged Tyre for 10 or 13 years and never took it. Nebuchadnezzar. I'll give him and his soldiers Egypt for their wages. So Cyrus gets paid. But then look at verse 13. 45, 13, God speaking about Cyrus. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. Beautiful. Ten verses apart. Ten verses apart, he's getting paid. And ten verses later, he's not getting paid. He's not getting paid by the Jews. They sold themselves for nothing. They were redeemed for nothing, as far as they were concerned. They didn't pay on either. They didn't receive on one end, and they didn't pay on the other end. Back to 52. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and we ought to live like it at all times both in holy principles and conduct and in glorious praise and worship. Yes. It's, been, it's free to us. When we speak of free grace, free salvation, free justification, it's free to us. But it wasn't free to God. Right. He had to send His Son. The costliest gift He could have given us is His Son. So we ought to celebrate. If we can read this, awake, awake, because they get out of Babylon for nothing, and they get to go back to the wasteland that's going to look like the Garden of Eden, 
Your backyards probably look better. They had trouble back there. It wasn't perfect. But there's an awaking to celebrate. We should be willing to celebrate even more because of what the Lord's done for us. And we sold ourselves for nothing, as we're going to learn in just a couple chapters from now in Isaiah. We've sold ourselves for nothing that doesn't satisfy, and it costs us money. And the Lord offers us a feast that's free. And we should embrace that feast. And we should love the feast of the gospel and the liberty that we have. And it's called the law of liberty. For those of you that, were, that spoke to me at, at break time about the fact that you saw in those first six verses that it wasn't the legal phase of salvation, but the practical phase of salvation, the gospel in the New Testament is called the perfect law of liberty. And God said, I'm going to send forth my law. And see, it's a, it's a new kind of a law. And it's called the law of liberty twice in James chapters 1 and James chapter 2. Second lesson, verses 4 through 6. God would save them like he had done before. Verse 4. For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. Amen and amen. God is telling those Jews, you're going to know that it's me. I have been telling you I'm going to do this. I am going to rescue you, and you're going to know that it's me. But let's start at verse 4. This, this little section is a little different because there's an appeal to something unique. And that is the historical record of God delivering them from Egypt and Assyria. Assyria is thrown into this one. And thank you, Lord, for doing that. Because the main enemy that we read in the first 39 chapters was Assyria. The Lord is speaking. Thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt, many hundreds of years earlier, to sojourn there. They sojourned there for 215 years. Out of the 430 years between Abraham getting an unconditional promise through Jesus Christ and Moses getting the law of God on Mount Sinai. In Galatians, we, that time period is identified, and you quizzers should remember that, 430 years. It's from the promise made to Abraham to the law given to Moses. 215 of it was doing circles in Canaan, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 215 of it was, being, was sojourning down in Egypt. And there's a great Bible study on that subject because the current Bibles don't know how to handle a couple of verses in the book of Exodus about the time that the Jews were in Egypt. But I don't want to get you off track. It's Exodus 12, 40 and some related verses, but just write it down. Don't go look at it right now. That the Assyrian then oppressed them without cause. Sennacherib came in and ravaged Judah without cause. There wasn't a reason for him to do it. And I want you to keep that in mind. This is important in verse 4 that you notice that there's without cause. There's another not. I love rightly dividing the word of truth. And this one's going to be a little tricky for you. You might be, you might be a little rattled by it. 
to have a knot in the first three verses that refers to no money and to have a knot in the second three verses that refers to no cause. But it's there and it's obvious. We had in verse 3, it ends with, ye shall be redeemed without money. So we know that not means no pay, no compensation. But now we have without cause at the end of verse 4. So the not in the middle of verse 5 is no cause, that my people is taken away for not. So there's a different kind of a not that's been introduced into the context that we can go with because Babylon did it for nothing. You know, they hadn't done anything to provoke Babylon. They had done everything to provoke God who used Babylon. But do you remember over the last 50 chapters where we ran into, O thou that dealest treacherously, speaking of Babylon, thou that dealest treacherously, why are you doing this to us? Because from God's standpoint, he was using Babylon as a spanking rod but from their standpoint, they were just trying to expand the Babylonian Empire. And because their motives weren't, weren't pure in it, God was going to punish them. And so verse 5, Now therefore what have I here, saith the Lord? I've got a situation on my hands of the Babylonians ruling over my people and making them howl, and they took them away for nothing. They did not have justifiable cause. They dealt treacherously like other verses describe that we've been over already in progressing through Isaiah. And my name continually every day is blasphemed. Here's a triplication. There's so many of them in these two chapters. They took my people for nothing. They're making them to howl. And they're continually blaspheming my name. And so you see these three causes for God's vengeance coming upon the Babylonians. And it's in verse 6. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. Amen. I have prophesied. I have told you about it. I'm telling you about it right now. And you're going to know that I am your God because I'm going to deliver you according to the terms of what I have described in my prophecies. I've told you about it. I'm telling you about it now. And it's going to happen. I'm going to deliver you without you paying a penny. Cyrus is going to do it for you. I'm going to deliver you from those that have taken you without a cause, that have made you to howl because they're blaspheming my name. And I'm going to do it for my own namesake. Do you remember that lesson that we've learned coming through the chapters of Isaiah? I will do it for my own namesake. I want you to know who I am. They're blaspheming my name every day. Never forget Belshazzar using the instruments of Jehovah to toast his gods. The Lord did not like that. We have encountered that already. And so the Lord is going to deliver them for the sake of his name. You don't mess around with the name of Jehovah, the God of Israel. He's the only true and living God. And I'm going to defend myself and my, in my integrity and my name in the earth. And you're going to know, Israel, that I am your God when I come to your aid. Do not forget that God sees and remembers every offense against you. When you look at verse 5, remember that God doesn't miss a thing by those that might abuse you, whether it's on the job, in your family, or anywhere, in a church. Never forget that. God doesn't forget. He remembers every offense against you. He has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So you should gain an experience and learn how to pray. 
you gain an experience by God will deliver me. God has delivered me. God will deliver me in the future. And you learn how to pray upon him and come to come deliver me. And we don't take vengeance into our own hands. We leave it in the Lord's hands. The Jews did not become assassins in Babylon. We don't even know if they wrote petitions. My study of Nebuchadnezzar doesn't allow for very many petitions. My study of Nebuchadnezzar doesn't allow for very much of anything except paying taxes. But they didn't do that. They just waited on the Lord, and the Lord had vengeance. And the vengeance was as sweet as it could possibly be. No man can ever do it like the Lord does it. For free. For free. They all walked out. Nobody lost their lives. For free. He'll take care of you. Verses 7 through 9. Gospel blessings promised for future prosperity. We can call them gospel blessings, but I want you to see that the first fulfillment is going to be right there in their rescue out of Babylon. It's verses 7 through 9. Let me read them to you. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. The watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. Sometimes you may wonder about the paragraph marks. Sometimes you may wonder about my separation into the lessons in these chapters. But I've tried to explain to you that a great deal of effort goes into those lessons because we want to see the connections of these verses together so that we get a right understanding of them. Verse 7. Let's look at verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Now, we just had verse 6. I'm going to show you that I'm in charge of this captivity. All the way through these chapters, we have seen righteousness and salvation applied to his deliverance of his people out of Babylon. And we shouldn't move from that yet. When we look at verse 7, we know that the lesson before it is a national lesson because it mentions Egypt and it mentions Assyria in verse 4. It talks about people ruling over them and blaspheming his name every day that are captors while the Jews are the captives. So verse 7 of Isaiah 52 is, first of all, the reason to celebrate. There's messengers coming out saying that Cyrus has taken over the city of Babylon and has issued a proclamation that the Jews that want to may return home and build their city. That is a salvation. That is peace. That is good tidings of good. It fulfills everything we want in Isaiah 52 and verse 7 because of the context before. And the context after is going to be the same. You're going to see in verse 11, Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. So the context before and after, verse 7, is messengers declaring that the Jews have been delivered out of Babylon. 
I could turn you to Zephaniah, and I could turn you to uh, Nahum, and show you that there's a, in fact, why don't we, if you can find Nahum without too much trouble, if I give you the books around it, it probably won't help very much. Nahum, a minor prophet. I want you to see a fraternal cousin to Isaiah 52 and verse 7. Now what I've said to you this far is the first, the first fulfillment and the first application of Isaiah 52, 7 is to the news that the Jews have been delivered out of Babylon. The first reason we choose it is because the context before and the context after is talking about a national delivery and departing out of a city and not touching or bringing anything of its idolatry with them. Second reason is because the Lord gave us a fraternal cousin of this verse in Nahum 1 and verse 15. Nahum 1:15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. Sounds just like it. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, and so forth. Nahum is about one subject. The first verse tells us the burden of Nineveh. Chapter 2 and verse 8 tells us Nineveh. Chapter 3 and verse 7 tells us Nineveh. It's a national issue. And so the messenger is one of telling the Jews, guess what's happened? Do you know what's happened? Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar have leveled the city of Nineveh, the great capital of the empire that has been troubling us for hundreds of years. It's been leveled. That's what the book of Nahum is about. But notice the wording. It's appropriate wording. Can you imagine being afraid of a powerful nation that's many, many times stronger than you are, that's raided your nation, taken all ten tribes captive and scattered them to the four winds, leveled the city, the fenced cities of Jerusalem, besieged the city of Jerusalem itself, and to find out that it's destroyed? You would consider that great message. I love that watchman. Did you just hear what he said? That's great news. Come back to Isaiah 52. I'm, telling, I'm showing you why the first application of Isaiah 52 and verse 7 is to the context of the captives being in Babylon and being delivered. And it was fantastic news to hear about Cyrus delivering them in the way that he did and that they could return if they were of a, of a mind to, so, to do so. However, we then get to go and look at that extra level of fulfillment. Remember? Whose son is going to build the temple that David couldn't build? What, what's his name? Who is he? Solomon and Jesus Christ. Paul takes Isaiah 52 and verse 7 and uses it in Romans chapter 10, where it tells us how can they believe and except they hear, and how can they hear except they preach, and how can they preach except they be sent. So there is a, Paul pulled this out and by inspiration said, this fits preaching gospel preachers as well because they have a message that's very similar. They say, the Lord reigns because it's the Lord that worked out salvation all by himself. There's only one mediator between God and men. The Lord Jehovah reigns in two ways. Right. He reigns over Babylon and he reigns over spiritual, mystical Babylon and the devil that's behind that city and the sin that had us entrapped. And so I want you to see both. And yet I don't want you to be confused. But when you have the Apostle Paul pulling a verse, you know that it can be used that way. 
But Paul is not doing injustice to Isaiah and saying that it cannot be used for that context either. He's just saying, you want to hear a real message? It's the message of the gospel. It's not the message of being delivered out of Babylon. I hope that was understandable. The message of Cyrus rebuilding Jerusalem was great indeed. And it should get the response of a verse like that. But Jesus Christ is greater. Feet are mentioned for the part of the messengers that take them from place to place. You know, preachers use their mouths. But in that day especially, if they didn't use their feet, you never heard them. How many CDs were there of sermons in Paul's day? How many of his sermons were live streamed? How many iPods? iPads? There was none of that. If you were going to hear Paul, guess what had to go to work? Feet. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring the news. It was a thousand miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. And there were Jews along the way, a few, that to hear that news that Cyrus had overthrown the city would have been wonderful indeed. Verse 8, thy watchmen. And so as we look at this next verse, let's think, okay, it applies to the Jews coming out of Babylon, and we should also see some apostolic application for it in the New Testament. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. What does it mean to see eye to eye? You know what it means to see eye to eye. It's a little idiom that's come out of the Bible that means to see it in agreement, to have unity about something, to see it the same way. When we see eye to eye, I see it the same way you see it. We see it eye to eye because of the unity of the watchmen because the Lord was going to make them unified. And he did so. Look at uh, Jeremiah 32. I don't turn to very many scriptures because I do not want to distract you from the passage before us in Isaiah. But I want you to see this unity that the Lord promised in Jeremiah 32 and verse 39. Jeremiah 32, 39. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. I will give them one heart and one way. Jeremiah 32, 39. If you can find Zephaniah. Zephaniah was also prophesying before the Babylonian captivity. And he put it this way in Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 9. For then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. That is unity. That's seeing things eye to eye with one consent. They're all going to be of the same mind when I restore them to Jerusalem. And when, when you look at the ministries of Zerubbabel, who was the governor and the builder, Joshua, his high priest, then you have Ezra and Nehemiah coming, and you have two prophets raised up just for those men, Haggai and Zechariah. They're all on the same page together. They all encouraged each other to stand for the Lord and to rebuild that city. So when we look at verse 8, Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice with the voice together. Here's what gives it away. I, I get amused every week because I do spend some time looking at what other men 
might say about this eye to eye. <laughs> it's like Rahab equaling Egypt. It's pitiful. Let me show you if we'll just trust the Bible. Just trust the Bible. No one else. Just the Bible. What does eye to eye mean? You know what they say? It means that you see the Lord face to face. Eye to eye. Then, the other commentators will say, you see the things the way the Lord sees them. Eye to eye. But it's talking about the watchmen. It's talking about the preachers. Here's how I trust God's word. Verse 8. Thy watchmen. That's a noun. Is it singular or plural? Plural. Shall lift up the voice. Singular or plural? Oh, so we have plural men speaking with one voice? Do we? With the voice. Singular or plural? Singular. Together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye. And I mean no sacrilege. I love God's word. Isn't that just plain as could be by just looking at the verse itself? A plurality having one voice because they're going to see everything eye to eye. And the Lord shall bring again Zion. Did the apostles see things eye to eye? And in thinking about this, was there a serious church council that could have easily split up the churches of Jesus Christ? Right. Were there Jews and Gentiles involved? Did they hate each other? Were there some newcomers, like the Apostle Paul and Barnabas there? Were there some old established guys like Peter, James, and John there? Could that thing have blown up? Had the men in Jerusalem allowed some Pharisees to be converted and baptized that still held that people needed to keep the law of Moses to be saved? Yes, they had. How did it get rectified? A fantastic church council is described in detail for us in Acts chapter 15, and they left with one accord. It's beautiful. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? And the book of Hebrews was written for those in Judea that were around the city of Jerusalem that was going to be destroyed. Who wrote it? Paul. Wait a minute. I thought Paul was a preacher to the Gentiles. Why is he writing the Hebrews? Is he trying to help those Jews because they all see eye to eye? Why did Peter write First and Second Peter? Did Peter write First and Second Peter for the Jews in Judea where he administered his whole life until he went to Babylon? No. He wrote to Asia to help Paul out that I'm of the same opinion with Paul. I've taught you all this. You may have forgotten it, but it's all... Go read the opening of First and Second Peter. Both of them will say, to the strangers scattered abroad in Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Those, that's Paul's stomping ground. What's Peter writing those people for? Because they all saw eye to eye. I, it's a shame that men today don't see eye to eye. We have one manual. Did you like that Arminian pastor I sent you a couple of days ago in his paragraph? Did you think that he and I were colluding together? We're partners together. I, I love it. He has the Holy Spirit. He has the Word of God. He sees it exactly the same. As one brother put it to me, or maybe more than one, told me, on that particular subject, you don't even need the Holy Spirit or the Bible. 
because the world's making such a uh, overblown issue out of COVID-19. Now, there's some truth to that, but I still enjoyed it coming from another Baptist pastor. I, I love verse 8. You know, we could just go off on it on how those men got together. What did, the, what did the apostles do? We do something in our church, and we've, ta we've taken a practice of the New Testament and, and just given it a slightly different use in our church. But what did the apostles do in Galatians chapter 2? They extended to each other. And while they were shaking each other's hands, they looked in each other's eyes and said, Paul, you go to the uncircumcision. We're going to go to the circumcision and let us both remember the poor. Do you remember that? And we all agree on this. And we agree that, Titus, you can walk out of this meeting without being circumcised against your will. That was nice. He was the happiest man of the bunch. That's all in Galatians 2. They saw things eye to eye. Break forth into joy in verse 9. Ye waste places, the Lord hath comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. It was time for them to celebrate. Hearing the truth of the gospel is an incredible blessing and privilege, and it required men to get it to you. I did a few months ago a slide presentation with you on a Wednesday evening. How did you hear? How did you hear? It took some feet. It took some feet to get it to you. How did you hear? Thank you, Lord, for feet that have carried the gospel to us. Amen. It required men to get it to you for which you should give thanks and pray and ask for more such men for God to raise up. Verses 10 through 12. God would deliver his holy people for all to see. Verse 10. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart ye, depart ye. Go ye out from thence. Touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rearward. Amen and amen. This is still Babylon, primarily. We can see some aspects of it fulfilled in the New Testament. But verse 10, the Lord's made bare his holy arm by coming to defend his people with Cyrus the Persian. And it's been described many different ways, and that is what it's referring to in verse 10. Of course, there's going to be a gospel salvation that's carried to the nations as well. But I want to stick with the context, because if I go try to make this purely apostolic, gospel of the New Testament, what am I going to do with verses 11 and 12, but get way too creative in my spiritualizing that I cannot and will not justify? Because in verses 11 and 12, it's depart ye, depart ye, go out from thence, go ye out of the midst of her. What is the her? <coughs> Babylon. Go ye out from her and don't touch any unclean thing. Don't take any of her idols. Don't take any of her manuals. Don't take anything of her false religion. Because you're bearing the vessels of the Lord. Remember, Cyrus said, give them back everything that was in that temple. Don't touch their junk. You have everything that's mine. Take it back. And look at verse 12. You know that it's Babylon. Ye shall not go out with haste. Johnny, Johnny, get up. Johnny, get up. Uncle Adam's here. Uncle Adam's here. He's got a four-wheeler outside the city walls of Babylon. Hurry up. Be quiet. Get your suitcase. Remember we had it packed. It's under your bed. 
Let's go out and get on Uncle Adam's four-wheeler, and we're going to run away from Babylon. Ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rearward. I will take care of you front and back. I've got your backs. I'm out in front of you. Cyrus is going to say in writing, all of you Jews can just get up and stretch in the morning. I think I'll take today to pack and we'll leave tomorrow. You're not going to have to go in haste or run. You know what this is referring to. You should be able to see it clearly. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Okay. That's enough for me. How about verses 13 through 15? And then we get to go home with the best thought of the day. Verses 13 through 15. Messiah was God's great servant for salvation. Do you remember him being called servant back there in Isaiah 50? Beautiful. Verse 10 of Isaiah 50. Who is among you that feareth the Lord? that obeyeth the voice of his servant. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Amen and amen. If you love Isaiah 53... You've got to love Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 as well, because it introduces the chapter, and it tells us about the Messiah, and it tells us how great he is. And then when 53 starts the way it does, who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? This is the spiritual arm of the Lord. We've had Cyrus, we've had David, we've had others as arms of the Lord, but this is the great arm of the Lord. But who even sees him? Who appreciates them as they should? And there's reasons, and we're going to get into that next Sunday. Next Sunday, maybe two sermons on one chapter. Because I know that many of you love Isaiah 53, and I don't want a single clause or a single phrase in that chapter to be confusing to you in any way. Verse 13, behold, stop, look, observe, be impressed. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, and everything he did was prudent. Prudence is the use of wisdom in choices and was preeminently in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 tells us that. Jesus was prudent by being subject to his parents, confounding the Jewish doctors, dealing graciously with his home town of Nazareth, silencing his enemies, teaching righteousness, far exceeding that of the Pharisees, caring for his disciples, relieving the oppressed, forgiving the sinful, maintaining integrity during trial, holding courage at death, forgiving his murderers, resisting temptation, and so forth and so on. Never man spake like this man. My servant. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we have a church. It's not for programs. 
It's not for a youth group. It's not for college and career. It's not for a pastor. It's not for friendships, except the friendship be with the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of the Most High God. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, and Jesus dealt prudently in every part of his life. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. He was not exalted on earth. He was not extolled on earth. He was not very high on earth. So when did he get exalted, extolled, and very high? After his resurrection and showing himself alive by many infallible proofs, he ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Was he then exalted? There are three choirs in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the Lamb. Fulfilling this prophecy, he was exalted and he was extolled and he was made very high. For God hath, put, hath made him, hath, it's Ephesians chapter 1, how's that? Does a reference get me by with you folks? Ephesians chapter, hold on. Oh, this kills me. God hath raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above. I wasn't going to forget those words. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. God has set him and raised him up and promoted him far above all competing authorities, all competing thrones, all competing dominion, all competing principalities. There are angels that are princes with principalities under their might, but they're all underneath the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ because of Isaiah 52 and verse 13. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. He would sit down in the throne of God, next to God, at the right hand of the majesty on high. He would be able to take the book of the everlasting covenant out of God's hand and God would let him have it. And the whole universe that understood that is presented in Revelation chapter 5 would rejoice that a man had been found that could take the book of the covenant out of the hand of God and rip the seals off it, for in it is our salvation and the judgment of our enemies. Amen. It's glorious. Our names are written in it. Amen. Oh, I don't like to tell you one verse is better than other verses, but you know, I, for some reason I just think verse 13 is better than anything we've hit on so far in 52 and 51. And I don't mean any... In, if there's anyone in here that loves the other verses of Isaiah 51 and 52, see me after the service, because I want you to teach me how to love it better. That's being a little sarcastic. I love every verse of those two chapters. But when it gets to this, that is my king. That is God's servant. That is the Christ. That is Jesus of Nazareth. And did he ever deal prudently? Every single action, every single word out of his mouth was absolutely, flawlessly perfect. Everything he did. Right. On the cross, he's taking care of his mother. You know, when we read 1 Timothy chapter 5, that we ought to take care of widows, all we have to do is look to Christ. When we think about obeying and honoring parents, all we have to do is look to Christ. Every part of life, Jesus Christ dealt with perfectly because he was prudent and he was exalted and appropriately so. Over the years, I have taught you to look for these little verb helpers, these little adverbs, as and so. I want you to notice an as opening up verse 14 and a so opening up verse 15. 
as one man, as by the, as one man's disobedience made many sinners, so the obedience of one man made many righteous. You're familiar with that? Right. There's so many of them in the Bible. It's the as so means in the very way that's been specified is the second clause as well. As, as it was done here, so it's done the very same way there. So these are connected that way. As this was done, so this is done because of that, that way. As many were astonished at thee. They could not believe the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The women wept. Peter said, no way will I allow that to happen. Drew a sword and tried to protect his Lord from being crucified. I will not let this happen. Many were astonished at thee, shocked that the Son of God, the Great One, the Messiah, the Shiloh of Judah, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the star and scepter out of Jacob and Israel, the son of David, would be abused and messed up and have thorns driven into his head and blood running down his face and be slapped around and blindfolded and mocked and made fun of by his tormentors, as many were astonished at thee. Don't ever be confused by the person of the address. Notice, Jesus is in the third person in verse 13. In the first clause of verse 14, he's in the second person. As many were astonished at thee, but I hope you have no question about who it is. It's just a reminder not to let these, verb, these persons of nouns and pronouns bother you. As many were astonished at thee, the address for that clause is to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, because chapter 50 said, I gave my back to the smiters. I gave my face to them that plucked off the hair. Right. It's addressed to him because he's the one that let it happen. He's the one that chose to let it happen. And as he did that, so he sprinkled many nations in verse 15. As so, as you were an astonishing sight to see men abusing you by bringing blood from all over your body, so you sprinkled many nations, including us, brethren. That is how he saved us. As many were astonished at thee, his visage, that's his face, was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. There have been men who've had their faces messed up more. This is a hyperbole of the Bible to get our attention on the abuse of him. When he was 30 years of age, he said to the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. And they said, listen, you don't look older than 50. Just a little sideline. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It ages people. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. What king has ever taken such abuse? What ruler and a leader and a commander of the people was so abused and mocked and his face slapped around and the crown of thorns driven down into his head? 
And so the Lord wants us, look, we've got 50. We've got Isaiah 50. I gave my back to the smiters. I gave my face to them that plucked off the hair. We've got Isaiah 53 in front of us. And right here in the middle, we've got this introduction that's appealing to 50 because he did it. It wasn't taken from him. It, directed, it directs it to him in the second person. Do you notice that? As many were astonished at thee, my servant, I know they were all shocked at what you put up with and what you allowed them to do to you. And then it jumps to the third person. His visage, the description, his face was marred terribly by what those Romans did to him. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That is the way he sprinkled many nations. He offered himself without spot to God, and God accepted his sacrifice and saved the elect of many nations by that torture that he endured at the hands of the Romans. As so... As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred, more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, so shall he sprinkle many nations. What would give him, what would give him the blood, what would give him the salvation to sprinkle nations with? That death of verse 14. And he went to it himself voluntarily. So, in this way, by this means, Shall he sprinkle many nations? He didn't come riding on a white horse the first time like the Jews wanted him to. He came as a humble carpenter's son and died on the cross for us. And the main thrust is the as clause and the so clause. As many were astonished at thee, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The description of verse 14, his visage was so marred more than any man in his form, more than sons of men. The description of 15, the kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Herod heard him gladly. Herod wanted to hear him and see him. Pilate, an appointment of the king of, of Rome, wanted to see him. They heard about his resurrection. Do you know what those men had to go through when they heard that Jesus was resurrected when the sun was darkened for three hours, when there was an earthquake that tore rocks, when their own centurion said, surely this man was the Son of God. They saw a demonstration of the power of Jesus Christ, and kings got led into something they had no knowledge of before. They had never seen a man rise from the dead. They had never seen a man hang on a cross and forgive his tormentors while the sun was darkened and while he's talking to God. While he's talking to God, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Father, someone, somewhere, he was calling, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Father, forgive them, for they know not, they'd never seen anything like it. The message of the gospel that we have and we hold dear in this church is the most precious, transcendent piece of information and revelation of divine truth anywhere in the universe. Amen. And it's been given to us in the Word of God. And here we have a little introduction to the next chapter. I want, as so, we have three verses. Behold, let me have you get your attention with the glory of Jesus Christ. My servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Amen. As many were astonished at thee in you being tortured the way you were, so you saved many nations. Description, his visage was marred more than any man. Descriptions, kings 
would be shocked because in the best schools in the, in the world, they'd never heard anything like the message of the gospel that we have. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.